Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, after the mayor's meeting with the Transportation Minister, Jeff Urich, we now know that LRT is a go again. Also, four participants in the Basic Income Pilot Project have launched a class action suit against the Ontario government for cancelling the project. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. It's a happy day at Hamilton City Hall, too. Uh, LRT in Hamilton is a go again, if it ever wasn't, I guess, but uh, there was some question about exactly what was going to happen, about funding, etc., etc., etc. Yesterday, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger met with the Transportation Minister, Jeff Urich, and uh, confirmed the project is uh, good to go, and the money is going to be there. The Hamilton Mayor joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Mr. Mayor, good morning. How are you doing today? Very well, Bill. Thank you. Is, uh, I guess first question, is Jeff Urich your new best friend? <laughs> Well, I'll give compliments to both the Premier and the Minister of Transport and uh, and a member of Provincial Parliament, uh, Skelly, for uh, all of them coming together and, uh, you know, respecting democracy in Hamilton and uh, understanding and appreciating that this is a city-building project for the city that has multiple benefits. And, uh, you know, there's every reason for the province to continue to support this uh, Metrolinx Provincial LRT project. Let's uh, make backtrack a little bit. We'll talk about the LRT thing in just a couple of seconds here, but because I want to spend some time on that. But how did the meeting go? Talk to us because you, when you were on the show yesterday, you, uh, you you had a specific agenda, a number of th- talking points that you wanted to address with the minister. Right. Yeah, I mean it uh, went exactly the way we would have hoped. Uh, you know, everything we asked for, they uh, they've, they've uh, delivered. Uh, they've lifted the freeze on the uh, land acquisition. There, you recall that they put a put a an acquisition freeze for any properties right across the province. Uh, we got caught up in that, and that certainly stalled, uh, you know, any work that could be done in terms of continuing to acquire the property to be able to get this project done. That then, by 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 effect, uh, stalled the bidders who, uh, you know, were uncertain whether this project was going to go forward uh, with a full provincial commitment or not. And so they basically sat on their hands and dropped their pencils until they got a clear sign. And I think the uh, the two items that we asked for were delivered yesterday. And uh, that's a clear sign to the bidders that uh, they have an extension now to get their bids in. And uh, no doubt they'll get uh, busy pulling them together. So uh, knowing knowing full well that the province is 100% behind this project. So I, I'm, uh, I'm really encouraged and enthused that uh, we're back on track, that uh, this project that's going to have multiple benefits throughout our community, whether it's, uh, you know, additional tax revenue, obviously transportation benefits, as well as uh, electrifying and removing, uh, you know, diesel uh, diesel buses off of our routes which is going to improve our air quality all of those are very positive developments and i think the province uh, has uh, already shown its support for public transportation i think the premier said that uh, a number of times and uh, and yesterday uh, they basically gave us everything we need to do to keep this project uh, moving forward so what was there a discussion about attitude? Because you know the rumors that were swirling around here that the money wasn't going to come, that the government was going to backtrack on this, uh, that it was going way over budget right now. What was the minister's uh, uh, attitude in response to all of that stuff? Obviously, you must have discussed that. Well, we, you know, there were there were rumors, and uh, you know what we uh, what we strategically decided to do was to help this new government uh, come to understand and appreciate what this project is all about. Uh, you know, the ministers knew. Uh, there's been a change in, in terms of, uh, you know, the transportation minister. So he's actually the second transportation minister. Uh, all of the departments uh, and all of the staff in those departments had to be informed. So we had uh, a lot of good people doing a lot of good work for us in Toronto. 
dealing with uh, all the uh, the deputy ministers and uh, all the staffers there that are providing advice to the premier and to the uh, transportation minister. Uh, we wanted to afford them the opportunity to come to understand and appreciate what this project is all about. You know, get get rid of all the rumors, get rid of all the innuendo and all the speculation around what may or may not happen. Let's get down to the facts and uh, understand why this started in the first place, uh, why it's been advanced and supported by uh, successive uh, councils, and uh, how we got to, uh, you know, getting on the the very verge of having bids done, and uh, that, that then was unfortunately stalled. And so clearly the province has seen the benefits. They understand and appreciate that there's a, there's a movement here that is going to provide new uh, new tax revenue down the road. It's going to pr- provide new built form. New uh, new affordable housing uh, potential is huge. And so all of those elements, I think, are, are clear indicators that they, they appreciate and understand that this is a good investment. You know, all the speculation in the world, uh, you know, and rumors uh, don't really, you know, make this project uh, come alive. What uh, what really does matter is what are the facts in this project? Uh, we were, were able to deliver all those facts to the province. We were able to deliver that to them, uh, you know, a good and complete understanding of the breadth of support for this uh, in our community, both on the corporate side as well as on the the citizen side. And so, uh, you know, after all of that that uh, that thought process, uh, they were pretty clear on what their position was uh, yesterday, which was uh, we're fully behind this. You know, the other element to this, and I know you and I have talked about this, but maybe just to reiterate for those that were concerned about this, uh, the the funding for this and the formula for the funding is much different than some of these other projects. I know the government has, in fact, uh, backtracked on some of the uh, commitments made by the previous government uh, in the guise of of saying, look, we're trying to save money here. But there's no $1 billion check that's coming. This is a different kind of funding formula, isn't it? Well, it's a design, build, finance, operate project uh, and maintain project. So whoever's going to construct this is also going to, uh, you know, operate and maintain it over the life of 30 years. And it's a finance project over 30 years. So it's a different uh, different kind of funding formula. It's not not one where they need a billion dollars uh, in, in the pot right now. Uh, this will be financed over time like many projects are, uh, you know, throughout the uh, Throughout the city, um, you know, some financing uh, financing is uh, you know legitimate, and it's legitimate for the province because they get to depreciate this asset. This will be their asset on their books, <clears throat> and as long as they own it, they can depreciate that asset, which is actually a, an accrual benefit to them in terms of their uh, their bottom line. And so, uh, I mean, that's that's certainly uh, been part of the original selling feature of the project. That's why it's not a municipally owned uh, LRT. Uh, this is, uh, in, in, for all intents and purposes, a fully uh, provincial managed and operated projects through Metrolinx, and uh, and we're uh, we're a participant in the sense that uh, we have our staff and the Metrolink staff working together so that we can integrate this into the rest of our transit system. So um, I see uh, I see the whole funding issue as uh, being being a bit of a red herring. I think uh, what we what we need to remember is what are the benefits. You know, cost is one thing, but the benefits are significant. Whether it's an employment benefit, uh, the you know, it's why the the uh, the, the laborers unions and the uh, the general contractors and the uh, the builder building associations are all very very keen on having this project happen because it's going to provide three or four thousand jobs for the next five or six years. Uh, the, you know, all of that uh, all of that is elements to uh, why we can get uh, either broader support in the uh, in the business community. Maybe to enhance the uh, the station locations if uh, if there's a, a shortfall of funding, and clearly uh, my uh, my conversation with the federal government has been uh, you know they're very committed to uh, 
light rail projects and electrifying transit and public transportation as a whole and uh, very open to, uh, you know, helping us on any shortfalls, as they have done in, uh, you know, most of the other communities, Kitchener-Waterloo, Ottawa, uh, Edmonton recently, a billion dollars directly from the federal government on their LRT. So that's not a foreign thing to have the federal government participate. And uh, we'll certainly explore that option if we need to. Yeah, I mentioned it uh, when Minister McKenna was in town just a little while ago, and I know you talked to her that in the, during that specific yep. instance as well. Uh, when you had that discussion about possible cost overruns, uh, was there any discussion about a ceiling on that, a, a limit? A, a, we can give you money, but only X number of dollars? No, and I think, uh, you know, we again, it's, it's, it's an unknown at this point. We don't even know if they're going to be cost overruns. Uh, you know, and if you recall, the uh, the original budgeting amount for the LRT from Eastgate to McMaster was uh, uh, $800 million or seven seven hundred and change, 750 whatever million dollars. I'm, I'm saying like, 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 that's the, like, like, like that's cash in my pocket, but these are big numbers. But that was the original estimate. Uh, subsequently, when they uh, when they announced it, they added two hundred and fifty million dollars to the uh, LRT pot, as well as two hundred million dollars for uh, Go expansion at Centennial Parkway, including funding for the uh, the line capacity issues. About one hundred and fifty million dollars for the line capacity issues that uh, we're hoping they get to sooner or later. So, so interestingly enough, uh, you know, we did talk about LRT and we, we uh, clarified what their position was, and that happened rather quickly. Uh, but the, uh, we also discussed uh, the 403 uh, log jam up on uh, coming down the escarpment and uh, at, at the link and the expansion there. That's uh, long been uh, discussed and talked about. We also talked about the 5 and 6 uh, highway interchange at Clappison's Corners, the uh, over-under uh, great separation there, as, as well as the, uh, the water-down bypass that needs a uh, Highway 6 connection that uh, needs full approval from the uh, provincial government as well. So there's other transportation road issues that we also discussed and uh, didn't get any commitments on, but uh, they fully understand and appreciate these projects have been in the queue, and uh, they're looking at all projects across the province and obviously looking at uh, which ones they're prepared to advance uh, sooner rather than later. And we certainly put our oar in the water for those projects as well to be done sooner. What about the all-day go service? Uh, I know that was quite a, a, a story a couple of weeks ago, I guess now, and I know you responded to it on social media when Metrolinx yep. uh, said that it's going to be quite some time before we can really establish that. Uh, you know, the the track is well, it's not, you got track problems. I get that with CN, we understand that, but mm-hmm. the government could and probably should be, I think, able to move in here and try to accelerate that. I would hope. Anyway, did that uh, discussed at all yesterday? Well, I got some clarity from them yesterday that, uh, that the, you know, it wasn't going to be 2031 and then it starts. So it's going to be a gradual ramping up. And so uh, that's that's good news. Uh, I, I still think that the 2031 date to get all-day service into Hamilton is, uh, you know, far too far down the road. But, uh, you know, the minister did uh, say that, uh, you know, we need to work with Metrolinx. And, uh, you know, we are going to be doing that. And I'll uh, at some point be asking uh, Phil Verster, the, the head of Metrolinx, to come to Hamilton and, Explain what, exactly what the uh, what the plan is and how they're going to roll it out and you know what that 2031 date means. So does that mean that uh, we have to wait till 2031 before we get any uh, you know additional uh, go expansion and all day service here, or is there going to be a gradual ramping up as they're building out the uh, the Centennial Parkway station and then ultimately the 50 Road station uh, and heading out towards Niagara? So I think we need some clarity on that, but. Uh, uh, the minister agreed that 2031 for all-day-go service for Hamilton uh, wasn't wasn't a uh, 
uh, a, a positive uh, uh, development, and uh, he certainly seemed to be concerned that we should be getting this uh, sooner rather than later. One of the big stumbling blocks, as you discussed on the show yesterday, Mr. Mayor, is uh, is the CN uh, aspect of this yep. and the tracks. Mm-hmm. Th- this has been a problem. This goes back to when you were a counselor, for heaven's sakes. It's quite a long time. The feds have been involved in this. The province has been involved in this. Uh, why can't we get re- this thing resolved? Because that's really, I think, the thing that's holding up this project. Yeah, I mean it's uh, it's been frustrating, and uh, you know, CN uh, we could we could certainly encourage them to be uh, more cooperative. What I'm hearing is from uh, certainly from the minister yesterday and from others uh, in the broader community that CN is uh, much more amenable today than they have been in the past. So that's good news. So uh, with any luck, with any uh, you know good hope and uh, fingers crossed that they come to terms on uh, how to how to free up some capacity on that line. So that we can get all day services going to our waterfront station, which is you know beautiful station, uh, you know a good good amount of parking, ready to roll. Only two trains, uh, you know, in and out of them, uh, in and out, uh, you know, of that location. And then uh, you know they're in the process still today of building the Centennial Parkway location. So no one wants to have that to be uh, stranded assets. And I think CN has a role to play here to. Uh, not only accommodate the freight traffic that needs to happen there, but find a way of uh, scheduling and, and allowing for uh, passenger traffic. And, well, what, what's uh, the holdup? Is critically are, important. Are they just are they looking for money? I mean, does somebody have to cut them a check? What what seems to be the stumbling block? I, I think it's track capacity uh, issues and uh, obviously complexity in terms of how you schedule that, and whether or not they're going to allow for another uh, track on their right of way. I think that's the uh, that, those are the stumbling blocks. Now, as I mentioned a while ago, the previous government set aside $200 million for that very project, and that was real money. That station is being built on Centennial Parkway as we speak, and uh, the other $150 million is was actually designed to help uh, provide additional track uh, along that corridor. And in fact, when we replaced the bridge at uh, Centennial Parkway, uh, just the other side of uh, Home Depot there, they, uh, it, it actually has an overpass that allows for two additional tracks over top of that, uh, on top of that bridge over top of the roadway. So it's not like this isn't part of the plan. Uh, I, you know, I can't tell you chapter and verse as to what CN's issue is in terms of sorting this out, but uh, I, I am, I'm understanding that they're, they're today more uh, collaborative and cooperative than they have been previously. Well, it's got to get done, and and you know if it's going to take some help from the feds, then so be it. Uh, but uh, it's, yep. it seems to be the whole thing that's messing this up. And I know that you had the same problems, and uh, you know with uh, the the West Harbor, of course, when we were talking about developing mm-hmm. those Tiffany lands too. And so, right. uh, the yep. sooner these guys come to the table and get this thing resolved, I think the better. It's uh, it's a Absolutely good day for the true. city, Mr. Mayor, and a good day for LRT. And uh, we want to thank you for your efforts and uh, the meeting yesterday, and uh, continue good luck. I guess it's uh, full steam ahead now. Well, thank you, Bill. I'm uh, I'm really enthused. Uh, you know, it takes a bit of a load off, and hopefully, uh, you know, we we will all rally around getting this project moving. Now, uh, we don't need any more stumbling blocks. We don't need any more barriers. You know, more uh, more accusations or innuendo about costs or any, everything else. Let's let's wait and see what the RFP brings us, and then we'll know what we need to do. Have a good weekend, Mr. Mayor. Thanks again for this. Brilliant. Thanks you too. Thank you, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Happy Friday here in the city uh, with the commitment from the province. So, yeah, the money's here for LRT. Just get her going now. 
Uh, Keenan Loomis, President and CEO of the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, joins us uh, in studio to talk about this. Uh, we've been talking about this for years now. And, and listen, you know, and, and whether there was any credence to it at all, when rumors start like this, business people and investors tend to shy away and just say, well, I don't know what's going on here. This this is really reassuring. I, th- I hope it is for the business community, too. I believe it will be. Uh, certainly, we know that uncertainty um, is very damaging to, to businesses, and, and they don't want to invest when they don't know, you know, they can't reasonably predict what the future holds. So we saw that, that, uh, you know, developers were flooding into Hamilton because of the LRT project. Then it was put on hold, and their plans were thus put on hold. And now I think uh, everybody is starting to mobilize as of this morning and uh, continue forward with their plans. So let's talk about the impact and the business community here and and the way that, I mean, you've been consistent through this whole thing right now, but uh, with this uh, seeming indecision that had been kind of hanging over us like a a big black cloud for the last little while, were you starting to get some pushback from business? Yeah, I had heard from a lot of developers that they just weren't able to go forward. The whole reason for them being interested in investing in Hamilton, not the whole reason, but, you know, a significant part of the reason was the LRT project. Obviously, you know, a a billion dollar project um, is is significant and will do a lot to enhance the property values all across the lower city. And, and, um, you know, and and it is about, of course, intensification. That's that's the big key to this. You know, it's not only is it an upgrade to our infrastructure, um, and uh, and our transit system, but it's about spurring development. And and so you know you have this expectation that certainly around the stations uh, stops along the LRT project that you know that's going to spur development and we're going to have uh, much more intensified uh, building form uh, around there. And if you don't have an LRT and you're not going to have a station there then there's no reason to, to do that. So, um, yeah, it, it, we everybody is, is super happy about this. Um, I would say, you know, except for the folks al- along the route, uh, probably a little nervous, which we understand. I think that that is uh, absolutely legit- legitimate criticism. It's why we've been working with Metrolinx on our LRT Ready series, which is, you know, preparing the businesses for construction and what we need to do to get through it. It's how's, not going to be going? impossible. Well, that itself was was put on hold. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have a commitment from Metrolinx. We, we, we did two years of LRT Ready programming. Um, we had a commitment from Metrolinx to, to do it again in, in 2019 and beyond, but we just needed answers. So um, that had uh, was just paused. And, and now, you know, I was talking to people yesterday uh, after the announcement that, uh, all right, we need to huddle together and uh, quickly and, and start to plan out what uh, the LRT Ready Session series will be for 2019. You know, it's interesting. I'm glad you brought that up because we've been talking, obviously, with the mayor about this and about the political concerns that, that have been raised uh, and the, the, the indecision since the, the last uh, provincial election, of course. Uh, but for all the work that they've been doing, uh, both the, uh, administratively and politically, uh, you're on a, you were on a parallel path, weren't you, th- with the chamber, uh, making uh, inroads at Queen's Park and with the business community and certainly with the new government. Yeah, so this new government is very business-friendly. They speak business better than any other government I think we've, we've had in this province. And uh, so, you know, when we came knocking uh, at Queen's Park, people listen. They open their doors. And, you know, LRT wasn't the only thing we've been advocating for. You know, I, I 
I we've been working with them on the uh, the private sector uh, retail uh, of cannabis and and that whole regime, and we've been uh, supportive of that. We've been talking about uh, uh, open tendering um, in this province, and and we will see. I think next week, Bill sixty six should allow for uh, this community to be an open tender uh, community, which will be significant for this LRT project. Actually, it means that we will have far more competitive bids on a lot of the work that's required uh, to construct LRT. So this hasn't been the the only thing that uh, we've been championing, but you know we saw an open when people were in, in, um, were willing to, to listen uh, and, and evaluate the business case behind the LRT system. And, you know, we took the politics out of it um, and, and we're just focused on the business case and helping them understand. Because, you know, as, as you can imagine, a whole new group of people come in uh, to all the various ministries and offices and, and, and in Queen's Park and um, throughout the province. And so they have to evaluate everything. Do we believe in... Did, did you have to reschool them? Well, not reschool them. We had to school them, you know, because a lot of them. I, had, I mean, some of the people in the ministry are still there. Yeah, the, the ministry you, people, you know, I think we're fine, and and we probably had some advocacy there. You know, people who said, "Look, we've been talking about this for ten years." <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, we spent over a hundred million dollars of, of taxpayer money on this, um, so be careful. Um, but uh, you know, we were able to to lay out the business case, uh, show them that, that there is broad support in this community for this project uh, within the business community, the anchor institutions as well, help them understand what has been spent, help them understand that the province owns $45 million worth of profit property in the city of Hamilton. And that, you know, if this LRT project is, um, is, is killed, that property will be worth pennies on the dollar. And um, so, you know, in, and the thing is, this, uh, this government is very receptive to public transit. Uh, very receptive to infrastructure spending. Um, so we found uh, a receptive audience willing to listen, willing to to listen to and, and evaluate the business case and ultimately put politics aside and go forward with this because it does make the most sense. So in hindsight now, were we uh, fretting over nothing? I mean, because it, there's there's got to be a transition period from one governor to another. So the minister, and this this is a relatively new transportation minister. I mean, this was not the portfolio that he, that he was given, of course, back uh, when the government uh, took office back in June. So I guess there has to be a learning curve. Yeah, there's there's a learning curve. I don't think that we were wrong to be concerned. I think that, you know, that's what the, the pressure... Um, and, uh, you know, that's what was important uh, as well. And, and that was part of the demonstration of, of commitment from, from us in the community. Look, we care a lot about this. Um, and uh, as long as you're willing, I'm, I'm going to be bugging you for, <laughs> you know, periodically checking in, making sure that, uh, that we're on track and, and that we're here to answer any questions that you might have. Um, you know, so you you got to find that right balance between, you know, bugging people so much that they want to just say, you know, <laughs> all right, enough. <laughs> We're done with this project. Um, but also uh, in 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 uh, demonstrating to them that there is a significant amount of, of support and energy behind this. We're committed to, to building this. And so, you know, we weren't wrong to 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 be concerned. Um, and I think that, you know, that's always important uh, in advocacy is to make sure that, you uh, 
um, you know, you, you you don't let up. You, you don't become complacent and assume that it's just going to take care of itself. Well, I, I think it's important that any government, uh, you know, it's, it's the one that's in Toronto right now, the one that's in Ottawa, whatever the case might be, uh, needs to hear from the business community. I, yeah. and, and that's not to diminish what goes on on the political end of things, because I know the mayor and, and many councillors have been working very diligently on this. But uh, you know, if you're in politics, eventually listening to politicians kind of becomes white noise to you because, yeah, 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 another politician wants something, yeah. Right. But the business community, that's a different voice, and it's an important voice, I think, for government to hear. Well, it's a very important voice. The, the only way to grow the economy is 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 by uh, through a private investment and, and, and growth in the private sector firms. Um, in this community, and you know, the, it, that's not to say that the previous government wasn't receptive to you know what we had to to say. No, and if it weren't for them, we wouldn't be in this position. Well, now. well, you're right, and 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 that's not to say as well that the the NDP doesn't um, uh, also engage with the business community. We were just at Queens Park on Monday, actually for the Ontario Chamber of Commerce Queen's Park Advocacy Day. And, you know, there was a, a panel of, of NDP, uh, Sandy Shaw was, was one of them. Um, so, you know, th- they, there's a certain um, group of, of policies that we're advancing that are also um, resonant with the, the, the NDP. But, you know, this government, you know, the, the, the Ford government, is uh, very receptive to the business community. Um, it, you know, it's almost more important for them to hear the voice of the business community than, you know, um, than the political community. Um, and uh, so, you know, we we took that opening and, and ran with it. As the mayor just told us a few minutes ago, there are two, in my mind anyway, two major points of clarification we got from the minister yesterday. Obviously, the fact that the money is there is, is great. That's that's top of the charts. We yep. get that. But I think not too far behind that in the manner of importance was the lifting the freeze, the real estate freeze. Uh, that was really crippling. That was I understand on a province-wide basis they said, let's you know, put, this, uh, put the brakes on this until we know what we're doing. But it was really hurtful to this project, and I think it really fueled that fire of, of, of what's going to happen next. Yeah, it's. Um, you, you've seen that. You drive around town, you see these boarded up buildings, right. and you figure it looks bad. Yeah, no, it it does look bad. Um, yeah, that, so that was that was part of it. That wasn't you know them freezing the the property uh, acquisitions in Hamilton wasn't specific to Hamilton, as you you pointed out. So I think people read a little bit too much into that. Um, they just didn't want to you know continue to spend provincial dollars until they were able to do the the thorough evaluation that they ultimately did. Um, so yeah, obviously great news all the way around, um, and uh, we look forward to doing whatever we can over the course of you know the next few months as the the private sector private sector consortia um, sharpen their pencils and and uh, submit their bids. We'll uh, obviously as well be rolling out our uh, third season of LRT ready. Uh, sessions uh, with Metrolinx and the the downtown BIA and the International Village BIA, um, and uh, then we'll just we'll keep going. And um, obviously, you know, there's a, a couple hurdles la- left, but um, I think that this was probably the most significant hurdle that we had to climb. Uh, maybe outside of the the vote uh, in council um, a, a year ago to uh, to go forward with this project. Um, that was a, a significant uh, effort required to to get through that, um, but uh, to be able to survive a, a new government 
um, and uh, and get their uh, in- embracement of this project was hugely significant. And I don't think that we are going to have anything um, nearly as uh, as as difficult to overcome into the future. Here. The other thing, because there is another vote coming up on council in, in the not-too-distant future, of course, uh, and it's going to do with costing and funding, et cetera. Uh, and a lot of people were looking rather ominously at that coming up and thinking, well, that's going to be a chance for some councillors uh, maybe to bail out on this thing. This has pretty much diffused it, though, hasn't it? The fact that the province is, no, the money's there. I, I think it has diffused it. Obviously, if, if we have to make a local contribution, that might be a little difficult. But I don't think that that's going to be the case. I think that in, in this case, you know, part of the, the evaluation that the provincial government um, uh, undertook was, was to say, look, there is a possibility that there will be cost overruns uh, on this um, because a billion dollars a number of years ago is now more than a billion dollars due to inflation. And, and inflation in the construction industry is, is more than just you know your, your regular mm-hmm. uh, uh, CPI type of inflation. So um, so I, th- I think that there's, you know, there, there's an implicit um, assumption of the risk uh, in that case. And, and so um, we hope that, uh, in fact, we have uh, Peter Bethlen Falvey, the, uh, the president of the, um, of the Treasury Board, um, so the probably the this is uh, this is your uh, morning after budget yeah session, so right? so post budget breakfast on April twelfth uh, Peter Bethlen Falvey uh, Treasury Board Minister will be coming into town and uh, I think that you know we hope that there will be uh, some other uh, answers uh, brought to the table um, when he comes into Hamilton on the twelfth so I n- encourage you know the the media to be there and and everybody to be there it's going to be at the Scottish Rite you can get tickets at uh, HamiltonChamber.ca. And uh, so I, I think some some more. He's he's an important guy. Oh, uh, he, he may not be one of the more well known names, but uh, the Treasury Board guy. He's he's the one that writes the checks. Treasury Board is <laughs> is uh, probably outside of the Premier's office, obviously the most important entity within the provincial government. And you know, uh, it's it's that's not uh, really appreciated by by most people, but uh, people who do follow follow these things and and understand government know that. Uh, to, to be able to get the Treasury Board Minister the day after the the budget comes down is a significant coup for, for us here in Hamilton. Um, and in particular, uh, Minister Bethlen Falvey is, um, he's, a, he's a great guy. I've had the chance to meet with him a couple times and um, comes from the business community. He was uh, with TD in, uh, in New York City for a number of years. So he's a business guy. He gets it. Um, and he's been re- very receptive to, um, to all of our entreaties and uh, to the point that, you know, he's, he's coming to Hamilton on the 12th. And uh, I think that uh, perhaps there's going to be some, some more news that uh, comes out after that visit. By the way, just to, to wrap up our discussion about possible cost overruns, and I know that some people still kind of get a little freaky when they talk about that, but you're right, inflation is going to have an impact. And I had heard rumors from people that I know that, uh, that are well-placed uh, with Metrolinks that the, the, the thing is going to go over budget already, that there's concerns about that, and, but we'll see what the bids are like. Mm-hmm. But what might be reassuring here is the discussions that, uh, that the mayor has had, and I frankly had with the Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna, when she was in town about a week or so ago, uh, where now there's no financial commitment there, but she says the, the federal government's open to popping in here too and, and throwing money at this project like they did in Ottawa, like they did in KW. So that, uh, that's, that's got to be a little reassuring. And again, for those counselors that were thinking, oh, I'm not going to spend a nickel, you may not have to. Yeah, I, I think that helped that, you know, um, Minister McKenna coming into town a, a couple weeks <clears> ago, um, I, I actually know her very well and um, I'm able to brief her on LRT quite uh, 
um, quite uh, regularly. She, her parents happen to be my neighbors, so yeah. <laughs> you know she's in town yeah. um, a lot. And uh, and I think Hamilton can see her as being you know a, a, a cabinet minister for Hamilton uh, around the table. Obviously, her uh, riding is uh, Central Ottawa. But um, you know, but her roots are here. But her roots are here. Uh, she's uh, a great advocate for this community. Uh, you know, along with uh, Philomena on, on this project, and um, so you know, I, I think we can count on the the federal government uh, if need be. But I don't know if we're going to have to. And you know, there's a variety of other ways that we can structure this as well. There's uh, there's uh, a lot of pensions that would be willing to invest in this. Um, maybe even some private uh, entities. Uh, and we know this government uh, also really does want to explore uh, P3 projects, so public-private par- partnerships. Um, and uh, so if that's also what's uh, necessary, I, th- I think we can do that. So, you know, I-, I think that's the thing, that they're not sweating that stuff. You know, this we can work this out. It's all a matter of just how we structure it. Um, but let's get this done. It's going to be a provincial asset, as, as the mayor said um, when he was on earlier. So the way that uh, this counts against the, the provincial books is, is different than, you know, just a, a simple mm-hmm. uh, expenditure to, you know, help uh, the community fill potholes, that, which was always the, the you know, the, the reason why I was fairly comfortable that ultimately we would be able to get this done is because it, it counts differently against the, the long-term um, uh, provincial budget than, uh, than does, you know, just giving uh, this city a billion dollars and letting us do whatever we want with it. Uh, kind of about a minute or so left here. We've, we've talked about the macro investments. Who's going to build this thing? And, and obviously, as you've told us and the mayor's told us, there's a great deal of interest. But what are you hearing on the street? What about the mini investors, the ones that want to build something, the ones that want to open a, a condo or build a stores or whatever? Are we, we've got some pretty grand plans and grand, grand ideas. Are, are they jumping back on site? I think that this was a hugely significant moment to, to have the, the minister come into town and announce this. Um, as I said, I think everybody's scrambling today to to reignite their plans. Um, I've I've talked to a couple groups, some of the consultants that uh, you know the the engineering consultants, for example, that that work with multiple developers um, that are are interested in in uh, building here in Hamilton. And um, I think that uh, the last figure I, I heard was that uh, from one of the engineers that there's about twenty um, plans for for uh, developments in downtown um, on uh, lots that are are currently parking lots. So, you know, think about how many parking lots we have in in the lower city. Pretty much most of them now have some sort of plan uh, for uh, building on that property, which is which is incredible and and, uh, why, uh, again, we kept saying that this LRT project is going to be absolutely transformative. And, you know, we're we're not, uh, it's going to take a while, obviously, you got to get site plan approval and and all of that stuff. But, um, you know, the the city is is receptive to to making sure that uh, all the developers who have plans are are getting a fair hearing and and that their um, plans are approved. Um, in uh, in rapid uh, time, and uh, I think that you know we're going to have a lot of construction ac- activity happening in downtown Hamilton, and that's really exciting. Yes, it's going to be a little chaotic, um, but that's uh, that's not the reason to not do this. And and this is g- exactly what um, we need as a community. And so, like I said, this uh, yesterday's announcement was very significant. Keenan Loomis uh, from the Hamilton Chamber of Commerce uh, and the webpage again because uh, the tickets are going to go quickly for this, yeah, they're this gonna post-budget. Go, yeah, HamiltonChamber.ca. Uh, you can check out 
our events there. We also have the mayor's breakfast on, on April 10th. Uh, that one's almost sold out. Obviously, I think that uh, in light of yesterday's announcement, there's going to be a little bit more energy uh, in the room for that. Do you think? Uh, yes, <laughs> I think. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kenny. Good to see you again. Thanks, Bill. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about something else that uh, has jumped out at us. We've talked a lot, of course, over the last couple of years now about the uh, the basic income pilot project that was instituted by the, the Wynn government, of course, and Hamilton was one of the test sites. And uh, we've had panel discussions about what it would look like. We've had some of the people that were actually recipients of the program in. And uh, then, of course, the government pulled the plug on this. Just after the election in June, the Ford government said they weren't going to do this uh, notwithstanding the fact that they had promised during the campaign that they would let the pilot project run to its end and then make an evaluation. They didn't do that. Well, four of those people that were on the Basic Income Pilot Project are now launching a class action suit against the Ontario government for cancelling the program. Joining us to talk about that is the lawyer representing them. He's uh, Stephen J. Morrow, partner with Calavuzo LLP. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the, the genesis of this, how this, this whole the lawsuit came about. Well, I mean, the, the trigger for the lawsuit is, is, is you would like to think the cancellation of the basic income pilot. That's partly true. Mm-hmm. The trigger for the lawsuit is that individuals joined the basic income pilot project on the strength, we say, of, of significant, consistent promises that they would receive long-term, steady payments uh, of money, and that they would have to behave as if they could expect to receive that money over a, a three-year period. So that's the genesis, is that they've expected that, and now it's not happening. I, I, I don't profess to be an expert on contract law. You probably know a lot more about this than anybody who, <laughs> about this right now. But it, it, was it a, 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 a de facto contract between the province and, and the people that signed on to this project? Could you look at it in that realm? Yeah, we are looking at it in that realm. I mean, we say it's more than a contract, but it, but uh, one one aspect of it is definitely a contract. I mean, p- people out there listening right now form contracts all the time. Uh, without requiring, you know, wax and a seal and and all of this. There were documents, application forms, consents, signatures, terms. It sure look and 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 we call consideration. People were giving something back for these payments. Uh, to me, that's a contract. Well, and and as we say, no, you didn't just walk in off the street and say, "Hey, I want to get some of that money." Uh, there were there was certain requirements that the the participants had to actually meet. Aren't were there? Yes, there are quite a number. Uh, they had to complete. Uh, a number of surveys, to give an example. And we're not talking about a survey where you say, well, I, I'm, I'm thinking confidentially, let's say, of voting for a particular party or candidate. Surveys where you're talking about your health, personal history, what your relationship is like with your spouse, your parents, your children, whether you're going back to school. So very, very, very personal and intimate details had to be shared in order to make this, this project work. Just to give an example uh, of, of uh, what people were going to give back also, people were getting, then get, giving up something they had perhaps come to know, like if they were on Ontario Works or Ontario Disability, ODSP. They were giving that sort of you know pro- project up or program up for something new and, and, and unknown. So th- that was as well fairly significant. Just to give a couple examples. For those people, and we did talk to people like that, Stephen, that were uh, having, as you say, moving from one program to another and committing. Some of them went back to school, et cetera. Uh, the pro- the program's essentially over. I mean, it's the end of the month they set, uh, for all intents and purposes, and there are no more checks being issued at this stage. Uh, what what stories are you hearing, especially from the four people that you're representing at this stage, about how this has impacted them and, and what they're going to do as of April 1st? Right. Well, I mean, uh, in, in a number of cases, the, the impact is, is fairly significant. I mean, obviously, you, you can step back from the short-term impact of, of uh, and call it the psychological impact. 
of being told that uh, that you're going back to an, an older and poorer program when you've been promised something different. That that obviously had a significant one. But in terms of long, you call it longer term impact, because these individuals had been promised three years of payments, uh, they were making long term plans and making long term investments. So we've been hearing stories of individuals who took the money and invested it in a, in a business. And now, because they can't keep investing in that business because the money's not coming in anymore, you know, they bought products, uh, paid for uh, paid paid for things that they can't use. Just to give it kind of an obvious example, or, or or multi-year tuition. So you pay for that, or you commit to that, but now you you can't pay the next level of tuition. So maybe you'll get through a year of a two-year program, but you can't finish the two-year program. So we're hearing stories like that. What about, uh, let's talk about the campaign, and, and I understand, you know, we're going to get into the realm politicians, they always break promises, but there was a, a hard commitment from the then-candidate, uh, Doug Ford, to say, yeah, I'll hold on to this program, I'll let it run through to the end. You know, they all evaluated at that stage, that was the campaign promise. Uh, does that carry any weight at all in this discussion? I, I mean, I, I do think it carries some weight in the discussion. I think what carries more weight is, is, the, is the very kind of clear promises that were made before uh, before the campaign, the promises in writing, promises that were signed off on uh, by the, the basic income recipients, you know, that, that this is the program you'd get. I mean, of course, we do expect governments to change policy and programs all the time. That, that's kind of a, a way of life. But when the government signs a contract, right, when the government signs a contract and, and makes an agreement with people, to give an example, we don't, it, just because the government changes doesn't mean that the contract's thrown out the window. But when they cancel something like this, uh, and as again, we're using this comparison of a, of a contract circumstance, that there's usually some sort of a, a penalty, is there not? There's some kind of a payout? I mean, uh, I didn't get the sense that there's much going on here. The government just says, oh, by the way, at the end of March, you're not getting any money anymore. Right. I mean, the, the government will say that they, they tapered it off with uh, sort of, you know a good six, seven, eight months notice uh, to individuals. And uh, and I, I guess that's better than simply an immediate cutoff. But uh, but but no, that there's there there was nothing there was nothing more than just simply advising people that rather than taking it to the very end, we're just going to take it to to March. That that's really all that they did. I want to ask you about the uh, again the impact of of some of the other things that have gone on about this. Uh, in February, the Ontario court dismissed an attempt by basic income recipients to get a judicial review of the program's cancellation. Uh, the three judge panel ruled on that. Uh, uh, does that make your job that much more difficult? In in a sense, it actually makes the job easier because what it's done is it's taken away something uh, that the court decision has that, uh, that that was tried but unsuccessful, and that was the notion. Uh, the notion behind that court application was that if that court application had been successful, the basic income pilot would have come back as a pilot, or at least or at least some version of it. The government would not have been able to simply cancel it. So essentially, the actual cancellation was being challenged in that court case as, as a bad faith decision. That, that was not successful. And one of the reasons why it wasn't successful uh, was because the court felt that the class action that's been commenced would be the better vehicle to seek redress. Because the class action doesn't make a court, make a government, put a, put a basic income pilot back into the, into the front burner. But all that the court action does is essentially enforce the promise with which courts do, uh, court courts do that with, with, with money and with monetary orders. So I, I think it makes it easier. If you read the court decision carefully, they reference the class action. It also is of interest from the court decisions to other things. One, the, the government of Ontario expressly said in its materials, go get your remedy in the class action. So I think that's significant. The second thing, as, as reported, the three judges, and we're talking about very senior judges on the divisional court, 
we're highly critical of the government of Ontario for cancelling this, and we're very, very firmly of the view, at least from the language that they used, that this was a clear, unequivocal three-year promise, three years of guaranteed payments that was, that was in fact, being cancelled. So can that decision then that was rendered by that three-judge panel, can that be used in your case? I mean, I, I, I don't think it has, it has uh, the actual decision carries any weight. because It's a decision about a, what we call an administrative law standard, and we're, we're dealing with something very different in the class action. So the actual decision, bottom line, is an interesting piece of historical uh, information. Now, when we hear of class action lawsuits uh, in, in other media, and, and some of the larger ones, of course, against you know, big tobacco, big pharma, things like that, uh, there's an opportunity, in, in some cases anyway, for people to join in on that. Uh, is, is that an, a, a possibility here, or is it just these four people that are going to be represented? So these, as of right now, there are only four individuals represented, the plaintiffs. But what the plaintiffs are doing with the class actions, they are proposing, proposing to represent the over 4,000 people who uh, were part of the basic income program, they need to get permission from the court, something called certification, to actually act for these over 4,000 individuals. So I guess to answer your question more directly, those 4,000-plus individuals, and if they're listening right now, I'd say this, they are represented to a point. They don't have to sign up for the class action. It's there for them. That being said, I mean, we we certainly love hearing from people and hearing about their experiences and and have, have in fact, set up a website to to, to enable that to happen. Well, give you that address in just a couple of minutes as we conclude the interview in a few minutes here. What's the end game here, Stephen? What's the suit looking for here? Is it it financial uh, uh, restitution? Is it reinstatement of the program? What, what, What would you like to see happen here? So, no, not reinstatement of the program because that, that, that cannot, be, cannot be sought. Uh, but what is being sought is financial restitution. It's the only thing that is left, unfortunately, for a court to do. I mean, and, and I say unfortunately because, of course, the basic income pilot wasn't just about money. It was about consistent money so that the program or the, the concept of basic income could be studied. We'll never get that study. That's the sad reality. We will never get the true end result of the basic income program, which was the study the results, and information and knowledge so that we could make sort of a public policy decision. That, unfortunately, is not something the court can address. They can address the monetary loss the individual suffered. I know the three-judge panel, what clause jumped out at me when I was reading that uh, a while ago, was essentially that a judicial panel can't make a ruling on government policy. And that seemed to be the gist of it anyway. I'm probably paraphrasing it. But so, that, but that's immaterial, really, to what you're doing here. You're talking about the impact that the, the cancellation had, not the, the program itself. No, that's exactly it. I mean, in, in other words, if a government like uh, the previous government wants to cancel the gas plants contract, uh, the gas plants people can't say no. We'd, we'd like the we'd like the contract uh, uh, put back in. So the, the the government can choose to cancel the contract, and then they can choose to pay the penalties that are associated with that. And a court can't, with rare exceptions, a court can't sort of make policy or overturn policy decisions. But once a policy decision is made, like once adults and presumably this government is, is comprised of such make such a policy decision then there are consequences that are associated with that, and there are legal consequences. Now, you mentioned these four people, if they get the, 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 the standing from the court, uh, are actually going to be representing the 4,000 people that were in the program. If you are successful in this endeavor, uh, who wins, all 4,000? Yes, I mean, all 4,000 would win if successful. It has to be a win for everyone. Now, there are going to be some people, in fact, I've read of one uh, such individual, for instance, who, because of the basic income pilot, they were able to build their business, uh, pretty rapidly, they're making some income, 
and they wouldn't have needed the basic income payments anymore. So although they'll win uh, morally or in principle, they're, they're not going to be entitled to any money. So, so with, with some exceptions for some individuals who really did uh, you know, build up that business really quickly or get back to work really quickly, uh, yeah, I do suspect that everyone is going to benefit some way or another if, if the action is successful. But just with the example you just used, though, what I guess would have to happen is there's still going to have to be a needs assessment, is there not? I mean, they, they, the way a class action works is that you, 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 get, you get certified and then you get some decisions on some of the key common issues. And then, yes, you have to have a proceeding to figure out what each individual has lost, so an individualized assessment. And and when that is done, and when you're making those assessments, uh, what's the determination there, Stephen? Is it okay? We figured it out. Okay, Stephen, you get five hundred. Bill, you get five hundred. Or uh, is it going to vary from individual to individual? It just depends on the process that the court orders, or that the parties agree to. So, I mean, the, the process. If you want a more attenuated process, it might just be that everyone gets the same. That that's done in certain cases. In other cases, the process is much more involved so that you're actually going to hear from each individual and their individual circumstances and actually award uh, a to-the-penny different number uh, per person. Uh, a lot of these things get settled long before they find a courtroom, uh, and they, they, they find some middle ground. Uh, are you anticipating that that's a possibility, or that you feel the government's going to dig their heels in here? I, I, I actually don't know. You know, I, there, there's certain things I know and there's certain things I don't. I, we, will, we will have to see. Uh, what's uh, you've, you've filed this already now? So what's the what are what are next steps right now? What's what's the time frame for this? So the main next step is to bring this certification motion and and have it certified as a class action. Unfortunately, that takes a while. I mean, I I don't anticipate being in front of a judge before the end of this year. Probably looking at at early next year, just because there's so much that has to be exchanged uh, between between the parties to get to set that up. It's an interesting end to this, and hopefully this is not the end. This is the, the beginning of the next step in this whole process and uh, the next chapter and what's going to be happening. Stephen, thank you so much for the, uh, the time this morning. I, obviously, we will want to stay in touch with you as uh, this proceeds uh, as, uh, at glacial speed, I guess, as things often do in the justice system. But uh, I guess it's going to be worth the wait. Thanks for, again, we'll yeah. talk soon. Well, and Bill, thank you to you. I mean, this is important. People in, in your area hear about this. They were affected by it. They should visit our website. Uh, which is? Com. Which, which is what? Cavaluzzo, C-A-V-A-L-L-U-Z-Z-O dot com, and uh, there's a class action page. They can sign up for more information and read more about it. Okay, thanks again, Stephen. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Stephen Morrow, of course, partner in uh, Cavaluzzo dot com. Let me do a quick timeout, and then we're back. Uh, By the way, as Stephen mentioned, if you are one of the participants in that program, it'd be worthwhile to pop over to that webpage and uh, follow the process as uh, this develops Slowly but surely, hopefully. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.